0: Mark two, thirteen through seventeen. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax booth, and he said to them, "Follow me." And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Good morning. A Joy to be with you guys again. Um, we've been going this fall through the series called, Who is this man called Jesus? And uh, today we want, I want to be able to look at Jesus as the missionary, and the way that he had a heart for the lost and reached out to them and obviously a subject that uh, I'm a little bit passionate about, of, of reaching the lost. And so I, I look forward to kind of jumping into Jesus' words this morning and seeing uh, what his passion in, in life was as, as we look at, into the word, and, and specifically how he described his life and his purpose as he came to this earth. And so a number of different places he kind of describes why he came and what he did. And, and one of them I want to start with is the first place where he does that, right after his baptism, after his temptation, Jesus walks into a synagogue and in chapter four of Luke, he says this, verse 18 of chapter four, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he has this like mic drop moment here where in the next verse he says, then he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and he just goes and sits down after dropping this bomb on people, which again, that's, that's the suffering servant passage of Isaiah that predicts the future Messiah to come. It says the eyes of everyone in the synagogue are just staring at him in his seat, and he sits while sitting in his seat, just totally nonchalantly off to the side. He says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, right? Meaning I am the chosen one who's come to do these things. And so what are the things that he was called to do in this place? says, proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim freedom to the captives, healing to the blind, lifting of oppression. Jesus is bringing his upside down kingdom to earth. One that is radically different from every kingdom they had known and anything that they were expecting of him to do. One that's not built on power and, and built on control or oppression, but humility and, and servanthood and sacrificial love in this kingdom that Jesus is bringing. A kingdom that's not about self promotion, but about serving one another, loving one another in this kingdom. And he says it in so many different ways. And I, I want to, again, look at a few of those this morning. And so, starting in John chapter 10 and verse 7, he, tell, he says this He says, He said to them again, Truly, truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. I have come that they may have life and they would have it in all of its fullness. So Jesus describes himself as the gate to life. That life is only found in him and in his kingdom. And especially for the hurting and the lost and the broken. That he's not just come to get ungrateful sinners into some eternal paradise in the sky. But he has come that we may have life and have it to its fullness. And that that is what he has come to bring life to those who do not have it. And, he, and this is why, and he, and he describes himself as the gate for the sheep to come through. And he uses this imagery consistently throughout his, his messages. And so in Matthew chapter nine, he says this in verse 35, he says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And check this in 36, he says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so this is, again, a passage referring to all the different ministries that he did. Of everywhere he went, Jesus sees the people as sheep. That's the way he sees them, as helpless sheep who need a shepherd. And he says, I am the gate. Everywhere he goes, he sees the lost sheep, and he cares for the lost sheep. And he tells so many parables about sheep and about those who are lost. And, And seeking out the lost sheep, the lost coin. I mean, this is central to the heart of Jesus. Reaching the poor, reaching the broken, reaching the lost. And in the story we looked at just a couple weeks ago, we focused on that story of Zacchaeus. I want us to go back there again because that's the focus of that story as well. And I want us to see it again. So Luke chapter 19, verse 1, let's look at it again. He says, he entered Jericho and he was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree for, uh, to see him, for he was about to pass by that way. Verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, oftentimes when people read this story, we, we, if you grew up in Sunday school, when you think of Zacchaeus, what do you think of? wee little man right we think of like this cute little figure that's just kind of cute and happy and and we think of the oh the grumbling pharisees oh he's gone to be the house of a sinner what judgmental people but we got it totally wrong when we think of Zacchaeus we should not have a wee cute little man he was the considered the worst most hated person in the city and not just because they were judging him but because he was the most despised sinful hated tax collector in that town When you think of him, don't think as a wee cute little man, not like Frodo in Lord of the Rings. Think more Smeagol or Gollum than Frodo, right? In the way that he was viewed by the people. I'm serious about this. He's not just a tax collector, but if you look at it, it says he's the chief tax collector. So he's the worst of the worst. He was despised and hated. He steals from his own people. He exploits them on behalf of the Roman government and he's taking extra to live a life luxury. Think of like Danny DeVito in like the worst gangster film or something, right? This isn't just some cute little guy that we're like, oh, wee little man. No, he was hated and despised in every possible way and for good reason. And so now the poor and the oppressed are looking at Zacchaeus and they don't see him fitting Jesus's definitions of the poor and oppressed. They don't see him becoming a lost sheep. He is the oppressor, not the oppressed, right? He is the most evil, greedy person they know. They despise him. Anytime they walk past his house, they would curse him. The opulence of his house, knowing it was built on their backs from money stolen from them and all but taken by force by the Roman government whom he served. The people, And so when the people say, look, he's gone into the house to be a sinner, it's not said like, like, oh, they're just judging. No, they hate this person. They are incredulous. How could Jesus go into his house? That is the most evil, most despicable person in town, and yet Jesus is going into his home. right? And yet Jesus considers him to be the lost, wandering, helpless sheep, the most powerful man in the area. And that's the same language Jesus would have used to describe the Jewish leader Herod or even Pilate, the Roman oppressor. And incredibly in this story, Jesus Zacchaeus gives his life to Jesus. And, and, and then even more amazingly, he gives half of his wealth away in the next statement. And then beyond that, he says, I will repay four times whatever I've stolen, blowing away any Old Testament command. And knowing that almost all of his money comes from stolen taxes, you know that that's going to be the vast majority of all his wealth that he's going to be giving away. And then Jesus says this in chapter 19, verse 10, the key verse to the book of Luke, the summary statement of the whole thing. He says, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And that's Zacchaeus. There it is that Jesus has come to find the lost sheep, the wandering wayward sheep, the herding, whether they know it or not. Zacchaeus would not have put himself into the category of the herding lost sheep. But Jesus knew that's the situation that he was. He's the most morally bankrupt person in town. His evil's been exploiting and taking from those who are poor and oppressed the entire time. And yet this is the person that Jesus publicly pursues and goes to stay with him. Jesus pursuing the chief tax collector is a thousand times worse than him going and hanging out with a Samaritan woman or letting a prostitute, you know, cry at his feet. This is the worst oppressor in the town. I mean, think of whoever is the worst them today. The one you feel you would never give the time of day to. The the one that you feel is morally reprehensible. The one that if they came near, you would walk the other direction, not give them the time of day. This is worse than that. And yet Zacchaeus, the very face of greed and exploitation, is the one whom Jesus pursues. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And if you're not challenged by this story, it means you're not reading it right and to me this is one of the most challenging stories anywhere in scripture of the people that jesus is spending time with and pursuing that jesus came to seek and save the lost and yes that's us praise god for that it is us but you know who it also is them those people out there that we've kind of cut ourselves off from and and stopped pursuing and, and feel that kind of outside the bounds of god's grace whoever those people are in our lives that we don't spend time with that don't talk like us, behave like us, act like us, whether we be family or coworkers or strangers, that we fundamentally disagree with on almost every single core issue, Jesus came to seek after them, the lost sheep. And he's passed that baton now onto us for us to continue to do that. Now, let's keep looking at what Jesus does. So next we're going to jump to Luke chapter 15, which is an incredible chapter of Jesus explaining his heart. And he's going to give three parables here all explaining his longing to reach the lost and for people to know him and he's going to give the parable of the lost sheep he's going to then going to do the parable of the lost coin and then the parable of the lost son otherwise known as the 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 prodigal son and so look at let's look at the first one of what begins this chapter all discussing god's heart for the lost chapter 15 verse 1 he says now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear jesus notice his audience But the Pharisees and the teacher of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So again, it's the tax collectors and sinners that are drawing near to Jesus. Now, I don't know if you know how incredible this would be in a Jewish culture at this time now sometimes today we we feel as christians we can be a little isolationist and we can kind of create safety bubbles of christians from society but we don't have anything on first century judaism right they were completely separating themselves from the world i mean they made it an art form of how to be so separated on these times right and here the sinners and tax collectors are drawing near to jesus and by using the word tax collectors it's it's true it was tax collectors but it's also representative of the most evil hated people in all of society whoever you would judge when that word is written and heard by the people of that time it simply means the most offensive horrific people in society that you would never give the time of day to and he goes on in verse three and he says then jesus told told them this parable suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So again, Jesus' focus here is on reaching the sinners, the lost sheep. And this is where so much of his energy goes, because this is what Jesus was known for. In fact, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is quoting the other people who are commenting on him when he says this in 734. He says, the son of man came eating and drinking and you say, and this is him quoting them, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's the way they describe Jesus. It's the nickname they gave for Jesus, a friend of sinners and tax collectors. They meant it as a plate of disdain, of disgust, and Jesus wears it as a badge of honor. Yes, that is who I am, right? I am a friend of sinners and tax collectors. So what would that look like for us today? A friend of sinners and tax collectors. means we should all get to hang out with IRS agents, right? And become good friends with IRS agents, right? Maybe, but unless, if that's the person that you're really struggling with, but probably not, right? It means Jesus is a friend of sinners and whoever you feel the least deserving of your love, right? A friend of sinners and whatever group you're most repulsed by. A friend of sinners. And whatever group makes you angry just even thinking about them or seeing them on TV or seeing them anywhere else, that group that just rises something up within us, there's any group like that, that's what's friend of sinners and them. So the question is, is this who we're known as? Friends of sinners and fill in the blank. Is that how others would describe us? And if not... I mean, it's okay, we're growing, but are we growing towards that? Is that something we're actually moving towards? Of God, give me your heart for the lost and the broken. Because this understanding, and all of this, is that Jesus is influencing, it's not the understanding around, sorry, in this, Jesus is the one that is influencing them and not the other way around, because... So often today, sometimes people can say, well, yes, I need to be a friend of sinners and and do that. And we can actually put ourselves in situations where we're the ones being influenced rather than being a light in the darkness. The darkness is the one actually encroaching on the light. So we must use wisdom and not just hear this and run out. If my struggle with alcoholism doesn't mean now I need to go hang out at the bars, Um, though there might be something where God will release that. But Jesus was the one that was influencing them. The light was influencing the darkness. In fact, Casting Crowns had a great song about this. It came out like 10 years ago. I was just listening to it again this week um, called Jesus, Friend of Sinners. If you had time this week, I highly recommend go to YouTube, type in Jesus, Friend of Sinners lyric video, watch it, and just prayerfully go through that song again with the Lord. So powerful, again, as we walk. Is this who we are known for? But after this passage, Jesus doesn't take his foot off the gas pedal. In fact, in the next story, Jesus is being anointed by the prostitute while people are freaking out that he's letting an evil sinner touch him. And then Jesus responds by telling the story with to them that the more sinful someone is, the more grateful they will be in receiving his love. Right? And so the next story after that, then, is the parable of the sower. Where again, he tells the story of, you need to go out and sow widely, as far as you possibly can, and trust in the Lord to do the growing. I mean, every chapter, after chapter, after chapter, is story of Jesus pursuing the lost sheep. I want to look at one more story from Luke, and it's one that uh, we looked at briefly a couple weeks ago. But it's one of my favorites, and it's in chapter five. And he says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to them, "Follow me and leave everything." He, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Verse twenty-nine. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Notice a repeating theme here. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So notice here again how Jesus describes his role of what he came to do. And I love this passage so much of him just again coming back to sinners and tax collectors. And the Lord actually used this very passage to totally kind of turn my world upside down just over a decade ago. But what we see here is that Jesus again is the friend of sinners. And he's again hanging out with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors. This is normal for him. Remember what we talked about before. The Bible only shows us about 100 days of Jesus' public ministry, which means if we have so many stories like this, it means there were a heck of a lot more in the rest of his time. And again, he's sitting here eating, laying back, chilling with the the, the tax collectors and the sinners, eating their fancy food, drinking their fancy wine, all of it stolen from their own money. And he becomes friends with the most looked down people of society. And then again, Jesus describes why he came here. And he says, the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous... But by, and by that, when he says righteous, he means not those who are righteous, but those who consider themselves to be so righteous that they won't actually repent and come to Jesus. But I've come to call sinners to repentance. And so he's, again, the friend of sinners, but not just the friend of sinners. The crazy thing about this is it says that Jesus is calling them to repentance. And so it's not that he's just like an undercover savior, right? Like dressed in plain clothes and no one knows who he is. He's telling them to repent, right? He's very open about that, but yet they are drawn to him and still chase after him everywhere he goes. And that tells you there's something about the way that he communicates that is not some judgmental, you're a sinner going to hell or else. But there is a way in which they experience his love and his comfort and his acceptance in ways they've never known before. That they're literally comfortable relaxing, literally laying down next to him. Reclining is the word that's being used there. Reclining with him. The comfort level in that place. And this is the sinners and the tax collectors with Jesus. They do not run from him but to him. But it was also this passage that I said that kind of rocked my world a number of years ago when the Lord used this. I was uh, My mentor at the time was a guy, you, some of you, if you've ever sat with Steve and gone through the book Father Heart of God with him, that was written by uh, Floyd McClung, was my mentor in South Africa where he lives now. And, uh, he, was, he was going through this passage, and, and while he was teaching, basically the exact message I just gave, the Lord gave me a picture. One of the only times I've had like a clear picture just dropped in my mind in that way. And it was a picture of a doctor's office, and the doctor's office had a sign on the door, and on the sign it said, Healthy Patients Only. <laughs> and I was confused for a second, and I was just like, Lord, what are you showing me? And then just instantly revelation came. Because at that point, I mean, I'd been in missions for about 15 years by that point as a full time missionary. About the first half of that time was spent with me doing uh, church planting in in China and reaching a lot of unreached people groups. But the second half had been primarily spent with me working with pastors and missionaries, training them to go reach the lost. And, And not what I was doing was wrong, but the Lord so clearly, instantly revealed to me, like, you need to change your schedule to go make sure you have time with people who are lost. Don't just teach people to go reach people who are lost, but you need to be doing that. And so that day, I actually rang up a friend of mine who lived in the township. that was across the street from where we live, the oldest township in South Africa, where there's just incredible poverty and brokenness. And I just said, dude, I, I feel like the Lord's told me to go reach the least of the least. Could you go show me where the gangsters hang out? And this guy literally, I, the next day I went with him and he just said like, here's the street. Here's where they hang out. And I'm like, all right, see you later. I'll just hang out here for a while. And the Lord started the ministry that's really been the heartbeat of my ministry for the last 10 years has been trying to hang out with the people who are the least of the least, who are the tax collectors, the ones that be despised and tossed aside and never given the time of day. Because this is what Jesus said. We must, not that everyone must go work with gangsters, but we must be reaching out to people who are lost. And and I subscribe to this crazy notion, I must warn you, as we go forward and I continue teaching, this really crazy notion that I believe Christianity is not just about believing the right things, but that we're actually supposed to become more and more like Jesus. Fundamentally, foundationally, that it's not just having the right answers or acknowledging and mentally assenting to the right things, but Christ has called us to become like him. And I believe our lives should look more and more like his And that we must actually not just believe what he says, but obey what he commands to live and love like him. It's the central foundation of following Jesus. Our lives must be transformed, become more like his. And that means we have to take what he did seriously, not just the commands that he did, but actually how he lived his life and say, Lord, what does it mean for me to adopt that way of life? And sometimes that makes it really awkward and really uncomfortable. But that is what we are called to as disciples and apprentices and followers of Jesus. And you know what his heart beats for more than anything as we see in Scripture? It's the lost. You can't get around this. The broken, the poor, the oppressed. Or as he said at Levi's, the sick are the ones that need him, not the healthy. And Jesus calls us to go and do likewise. To take his kingdom to the world and to ignore this command of Christ. To, to ignore is to ignore the very central beating of his heart. I mean, it'd be like marrying a politician who's running for mayor and saying, you know what, that's cool for you to do that, but I don't want to ever hear about it, talk about it, or ever be involved in, it in any way, even though that consumes your entire life. Or it'd be like marrying a PETA activist, and every day while you're working at the, 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 uh, the butchery counter at Safeway and coming home and eating steak dinners in front of them, just saying, you know, that's your thing, you do that thing, I'll do me. If we ignore this command of Christ, we're ignoring the very centerpiece of his heart of what he's most passionate about. Because his eyes are forever fixed upon the lost sheep and those who do not know him. When, when Jesus was asked by a lawyer what the greatest commandment is, in Matthew chapter 22 he says this. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. And this is the greatest and first commandment. And he says And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He explains the most important thing we can do is love God and then love others as much as we love ourselves. Now, when someone say, well, that's not evangelistic, but tell me, what is more evangelistic than God asking us to love others the same way we love ourselves? How much of the day do we spend thinking about our own self and our own value, what we want and we need, and taking care of our own desires? We are incredibly selfish beings, and he's saying, take that degree of interest you have in yourself, and that's the interest that should be on others. But then he doesn't stop there. Because then we jump to the gospel of John in chapter 13 and Jesus raises it another level. And he says this, a new command that I give you. Love one another, again, not as, not as you love yourself, he says, but as I have loved you. So now you must love one another. The, the bottom, the, the, the line is no longer the way that you love yourself because that can be pretty broken. But love one another the way I have loved you. In the perfect sacrificial way that I have loved you. And for Jesus, this is what he's calling us to, is to love others the way that he's loved us. And this just encapsulates his heart. And he says, the same way that I have poured out my life for you, now pour that out for one another. Amongst your families and coworkers and neighbors and friends and those who don't yet know, strangers. So what then does this look like for us in a post-Christian Mill Creek, Seattle area today? know Sarah and I we've been missionaries since we were 17 our entire adult lives we've been in this and we're moving back to the states this past year and I want to know that I don't really see anything different about the way we are called to live our life here now than the way we did it last year the year before that the 10 years before that when I was living in Myanmar living in Vietnam or living in China or South Africa or Sudan or Nigeria it makes no difference of the way that God has called us to live whether we are missionaries or we are janitors whether I'm working here as a pastor I'm working as a teacher or as a lawyer or working for Facebook or Microsoft or anything it's the same thing that God has called us to, that he has called us to love well the people that God has put us among, right? To have his perspective upon the people, to intentionally seek God's heart for the people that we're among and to love them with his supernatural love. That's what we are called to do. And coming to America, it was, my specific, it was my longing, and I've shared it before, that there were like one of three places that I wanted us to move to. It was either San Francisco, Portland, or Seattle, right, were my top three choices. And not just because I thought they were the greatest cities, but because they were the most post-Christian cities in America. And I thought, if we're coming to the States, I want to be where the fewest people know Jesus. I want to be where, where Christians are becoming more and more of a minority, and I want to be where cultural Christianity is mostly died out, right, where it's not cool just to be a Christian anymore. And Why? Well, go back to everything Jesus said, I want to be where the most lost sheep are. Because that's where Jesus' heart is. That's where his eyes are constantly pressing. And so we are so lucky to live here in this area. And I don't know if you guys recognize what a gift it is to live here that we are living in the place of Jesus' eyes more so than any other place in this country or just focused upon this area because there's more lost sheep here per capita than anywhere else. This is a gift that we get to live in this place. And I know that a lot of people are hurting In fact, a few months ago, someone came up to me and they were just sharing with me a real difficult thing that they were going through. I and mean, it was to the point of tears, sharing how exhausted they were of fighting against the culture that's around them and, and all the stuff that's going on. And they were, they were running a business and they were so tired they said of fighting I mean, all these progressive agendas and they were scared for their kids and the indoctrination and, and especially all the LGBTQ stuff happened in their schools and everything else and all the questions. I mean, they were just to the point of exhaustion. And, and I was just empathizing and listening to them and they, they were saying it wasn't just one issue but it's so many. And they went on to like you know like it never used to be like this. It wasn't this when i grew up it wasn't this way 20 years ago it wasn't this way 10 years ago and they just shared again just poured out their heart of how hard it is and just the the, the discouragement that they have and that the church is losing ground and, and all this stuff just kind of point after point and i heard them and I, I i weep with them because i know it's hard and i deeply emphasize that they're right the culture has radically shifted in the last 20 years and especially in the last five in the seattle area christianity has gone from being a protected majority to now a minority we're now experiencing the beginnings of a post-Christian society, this likes of which Europe has known for years and Canada's experienced now for at least a decade. The majority of young people graduating high school have a terrible view of Christianity and want nothing to do with Christians. Right? It is, the things are changing around us. It's real, and it's hard, and, and many have gotten very angry, and I understand. Many are leaving this place, and so let's get the heck out of this area, right? Because they want nothing to do with the sinking, uh, sinking ship of the Seattle area, and they feel it's a cesspool. And I understand, it, and I understand, and I sympathize with the lost. But I want to let you know again, this is why we moved to Seattle. Right? And it's why we're here and what I believe what Northview's call is in this next season is this exactly what the church is built for. Times like this is what the church was designed for from the very beginning. And I honestly believe this is where it flourishes more than any other place when you look historically at Christianity. Because historically, when Christianity has become the predominant culture, when it has the power, it gets watered down. And people abuse its power for their own purposes, and it loses its influence when everyone thinks they should be a Christian, because that's the right thing to do. Christianity as a place of power, there's not many examples where that works out well anywhere in Scripture or in history. But historically, spirit-empowered Christianity always comes at a cost. In the last 40 years, the problem is there's been very little cost to being a Christian in America. You could do it very easily. It was the popular thing to do. And so I am excited about this next season of the church, of what God is about to do. I mean, it reminds me of just, some of you are old enough to remember a couple generations ago, back in the 60s, when many, 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 many people, especially on the West Coast, threw off all their parents' religion, all their traditions, and they instead chose to live a life of free love, sexual exploration, and drug use without any concern of what was going on. And they, they threw off all that stuff that was going on. I mean, what was said of the judges was true, that that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But could you imagine if 40, 50 years ago, all the Christians at that time saw the moral depravity around and said, let's all leave the West Coast for the Midwest. We might have missed out on what we know as the Jesus Movement, where it was a revival of people who had sought off all these things that had no meaning in themselves and trying to find meaning, and Jesus came in and blew everyone away. I'm convinced that that's going to be happening here soon. Because people are seeking after stuff that has no value. And society's moving that way and it's going to cannibalize itself. And we are going to see a movement of Jesus. The times we find ourselves in are different from where we've been. And I get that. But it doesn't mean it's bad just because it's different. There's not a time in my lifetime since I've been alive at 42 where the church is more beautifully set up to reach out to the lost than right now. If we take Jesus' word seriously. And we seek to actually live and love like him. And we seek after his kingdom and not our own. We're going to see such a beautiful, amazing movement of God. But we must seek to live and love like him. It can't just be cultural Christianity. We have to love others like Jesus loved us. We have to be his hands and feet. We can't retreat into Christian enclaves and bubbles and just try to remove ourselves from the world around us. Because at no point in our society, at least since I've been alive, has our society experienced such loss and pain and isolation. At no point that in the last 18 months has our mortality been thrown in our faces on a daily basis by the news screaming it at us. Probably since the world war from years ago. People are desperate for connection right now. They're desperate for a place to land. People are desperate for someone to take an interest in them. To be more interested in listening to what they have to say than what we have to say. And this is what the church getting is built for. You know, there's a recent study that came out recently of, of Gen Zers, those who are 25 and below. And it said that the average Gen Zer spends up to or around 8 hours a day on social media texting and chatting. 8 hours a day on average of 25 and below. Most of that on social media connections. And what's fascinating with this... As you think, with eight hours a day of connectivity, of connecting to others, of chatting to others, and all this other stuff, that they would be the most connected, the most engaged group, that have the most friends, and the most place of, of intimacy. But 79% of people in the same study reported being lonely. 79%. A study came out just two weeks ago uh, out, of, out of Calgary that did a massive study that found that... Uh, I want to get the numbers right. Oh, that, that those who have show, youth that are showing rates of clinically significant generalized anxiety and depressive symptoms. So clinically significant anxiety anxiety and depression amongst youth has more than doubled in the last 18 months. Doubled. And these aren't just ideas. These are clinical levels of depression and anxiety doubled in the last 18 months. If only there was a way for people to grab connectedness to a deeper meaning of what we're here and what we're, God created us on earth for. And we as church have the answers god has called us to be his hands and feet to love others the way that he's loved us and yes we're facing the incredible shifts in culture but we're entering into a season the church was literally born for it was created for this and sometimes i feel as a church we can forget our history jesus's church has flourished in adversity it has flourished in difficulty i mean literally read any book of the new testament and you'll get this story And we're not even remotely close to what the early church was experiencing or what many Christians across the globe experience. And and I don't say that to minimize what we're going through and to say there's no persecution. I mean, it comes in different forms. But just as a brief reminder of where the church was created out of, the early church flourished as a tiny persecuted minority in the midst of an incredibly corrupt culture. The churches around Rome and Ephesus and Corinth were in societies where sexual perversion reached levels we can't even conceive of. What we're seeing around us and saying it's the end of the world, this is just child's play to what was going on back in that time. And what was celebrated on street corners and all the places where the people were at. We haven't even touched on what they were doing yet. And they were mandated to worship the emperor as God or face death in that time. And those emperors weren't just like good guys. Some of them were absolutely crazy. I mean, Caligula once put his horse and made him a senator, right? And made people bow down to him as well. He then one day on a whim, when he was in the the arena, when people are in their battles, the gladiators, he took an entire section of the Colosseum, an entire section of the audience, and had them thrown into the Colosseum to be eaten alive by wild animals. The spectators. You get Nero would take Christians and he would dip them into wax, stick them at the top of a wooden pole and light them on fire and use them as screaming candles for his dinner parties. Right? This was the emperor of Rome in the time when Paul was ministering. That's the dude who killed Paul. And yet during that time, the church was on fire. It was flourishing. It was growing and it was spreading. And the church in America hasn't yet experienced that. I'm not saying that's what's on the way in the same way. But in the West, we have to recognize that persecution of the church, biblically, is not a bad thing. Suffering, difficulty, striving, all these things are not considered bad according to Scripture. In fact, they are celebrated. Jesus told us to expect it. Paul told us to rejoice in the midst of it. We shouldn't be surprised when it comes And as I look around what's happening in America, I'm excited for this next season of the church, to stand up and be the church. Jesus called for us to be a city on a hill, a light in the darkness. And yet study after study over the last years has shown that when they study Christians and non-Christians, they can barely tell the difference. Unless the big caveat is when Christians know that they're being studied, then all of a sudden huge differences. And I recognize that many are still mourning what's lost, and I get that. And you need to mourn where needed. But then let Jesus wipe away our tears and empower us to go out and love the way he's called us to love. To love people so well that they're drawn to Jesus by his love and by his power. This is our calling. It's our vocation. It's what he's created us for. To be his followers, to be his apprentices, to be his disciples, to be friends of sinners and love those whom he loves. So how do we do that? When it seems that our value systems are so contrary to the world around us want to say again, I don't see this much different than what God had called us to do as missionaries. So when I was a missionary in central China, it was no different, I think, than what we're called to do now. In fact, I think a lot of those strategies that we use as missionaries in the unreached world are now more relevant than others. We need to have a missionary's heart, a missionary's perspective, one that is... Uh, uh, you know, like John Piper, he, he once made this statement, he said, uh, kind of famous for it, where he says that he said, go, send, or disobey. Like, everyone's got either go, send, or, or missionaries overseas, or you're in disobedience. And there may be some truth to that, but I think it totally misses the point, because we are all not called to just to go overseas or send overseas. We are called to be missionaries here and now, to reach out to the people that God has called us to. And so I want to just give an example of reaching out in China. This is, it wasn't some, like, rocket science form of doing it. But when I was in China, my perspective was not to try and change or my desire was not to change everyone's perspective on every aspect of life. I had one primary goal. I want people to come to experience the life of Jesus. Right? That was my goal. So in having conversations, I, met with, I had many friends who were Communist Party members and high levels of the Communist Party. And when they were doing stuff and saying death to America and America is terrible, America is the great Satan and all this stuff. And, and they were extolling the virtues of North Korea and all these other things. I would just listen in silence. I wouldn't try and defend America and American democracy when they were extolling the values of Mao Zedong. I didn't then try and come back and say, well, actually, he was a murderous dictator. And and, and I didn't didn't do any of that stuff. Why? Because none of that would have allowed me to reach them. All it would have done is create walls. Instead, I listened to them. I asked questions. I sought to understand their perspective and where they're coming from, of why they were feeling that way. And as I did it, I got to know them. I built relationships with them. And it wasn't about my worldview, but about me being able to love them as the hands and feet of Jesus. And I assumed that they were smarter than me in many areas. And there's probably many things I didn't know. And I learned a lot about North Korea and learned a lot about Mount Tong, and others from their perspectives. And that wasn't a bad thing just to sit in silence and listen. But I wanted them to know how much Jesus loved them more than anything else, more than any desire to convince them of my understanding of the world. And when Jesus engaged with Roman tax, Romans soldiers and tax collectors and prostitutes, all people, the Jewish people despised with everything within them. Go back and look at the passages, and you'll see he didn't start by trying to change their perspective on politics or sexual identity, but he sought to get to know them. He invited them for a meal, and more commonly invited himself for a meal at their home. He got to know them, their families and their stories, and, and as he loved them in way, and he loved them in ways they had never experienced before, Jesus came to bring his kingdom to earth, not to glorify earthly kingdoms. And now he's given us the call to do the same, and it looks a whole lot different. His kingdom does than the kingdoms of man. Now we're going to be talking a lot more about reaching the lost sheep in the coming years because this is obviously a passion piece of mine. I'm not going to try to overwhelm us, but it's something we're going to be talking regularly about. But First Corinthians, in chapter nine, Paul puts it this way, and I love it. He says, "Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible." 20, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. 21, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. 22, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. So Paul is saying, I will meet people wherever they're at. I will not fight for my rights or my agenda, but I will do whatever is necessary to reach those who do not know Jesus including laying down whatever rights I'm holding on to, if it means that others can come to know Jesus by me laying down those rights. For the sake of the gospel, I will do it all. I will become like one under the law, become like one without the law. I will become a Jew, I will become a Greek, I will do whatever I need to do so people experience the love of Christ in their life. You know, the first time where this became really real for me was my, about six months into my time in China. And uh, we were reading into the Gospels and the story of Jesus getting into the boat with the disciples. And in that moment, for the first time in my life, I heard, wasn't audible, but it was the most clear word of the Lord I've ever heard in my life. Just, Just vibrating in my head. And it said, get into the boat with your Chinese friends. Like, what the heck does that mean? Like, get into the boat. We were reading about Jesus in the boat with the disciples, and then I'm just like confused. And then I heard words that I immediately rejected and said, nope, that was Satan, because it said, go sing karaoke. I'm like, whoa, no, 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 no. You you may not know this, but in, in China, Karaoke is a really big deal, and karaoke bars are like the seediest places around. It's where prostitution happens, and drug use, and alcohol abuse, and all this other stuff. But on top of it, karaoke is Chinese music, and at that time, I hated Chinese music. It was like this electronic form of music. It literally hurt my ears. I, I just hated it. I'd been there about a few months, and I just couldn't stand it. And the Lord spoke so clear, and I'm like, I rebuke that. I don't listen to that. I don't want that. But yet, I would had many Chinese friends inviting me to go sing karaoke. I had a little bit of a singing background, and so I wanted, I did it once, and I hated every moment of it, but I felt the Lord, court Lord convict me, and I said, okay, Father, you have to change my heart. So we were going to us at the Chinese music shop. I bought 10 CDs that were recommended by the guy there. I took them home, and I put in the stereo, and I prayed, and I said, Lord, you better change my heart right now, because if not, I'm not going to do this thing, because I was expected to hate it. I put it in, and no joke, the moment it kicked on, I'm like, this is really good. and all of a sudden this what i thought before was cheesy terrible music i loved it i listened to like each of the cds started learning them and long story short god used me singing karaoke with my chinese friends as the primary way that he allowed me to enter into the culture and be able to see relationships deeper than some of them than many relationships i've ever formed since because i was understand their heart language their culture and their way of doing it on their terms and god gave me relationships i still have to this day and saw many people come to know christ through that and God had me get into the boat with the disciples. With, had me get into their boat just like He went into the boat with the disciples. In an American example, I, I, I want to finish with this that I saw. Someone sent me this tweet the other day, and I absolutely loved it. Well, it's two tweets. And I don't know this person. I, I, I probably should have looked into it in case there's something bad that I didn't know. But oh well, um, I'm sure I'll get in trouble with that many times in the future. But um, anyways, it's just I, hopefully they're a good person. I have no idea. But anyways, I saw this tweet, and uh, <laughs> and and I, I thought it was awesome. I don't can you see that? It's a little small, but. Um, And it says, my kids have no idea that my dad doesn't actually love Pokemon. They think he buys cards for them and trades cards with them and plays Pokemon with them because Pokemon is just that cool. It will be a sweet day when they realize it wasn't ever about Pokemon. Right? Now, this father obviously is incredible, right? He's giving up of his time to be present with the kids. He's getting in the kids' boat, per se, right? Meeting them on their level. But then here's the follow-up that's just brilliant. Update. Update. This past year, my dad has gotten really into Hallmark Christmas movies and always wants to talk to me about them. And at first, I was like, wow, this is so fun. My dad loves Hallmark Christmas movies as much as I do. And then it dawned on me, this is my Pokemon, right? I love that. This, this dad is my hero. Right, This guy is flipping awesome. Like He sacrificially is loving his kids in ways that they receive that love and don't even recognize that he is pouring love into them. Now, they aren't necessarily lost sheep, but it's the exact same idea. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. Amen? Amen. All right, I want to finish with the four takeaways from today as we wrap up. And that is that one, we must recognize Jesus' heart for the lost and be the hands and feet of Jesus to, love, to go out and love others as he loved us. Right? We have to recognize his heart for the lost. Two, there's no better time than right now for the church to be a light in the darkness. We do not need to fear the culture or any moral depravity that's going on around us. We were designed for such a time as this. Three, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He went where they were. He got into their fishing boat. He had meals in their homes. I mean, one of the most foundational works of the church throughout history has been hospitality and sharing meals with people. And COVID, sadly, has kind of robbed us of one of the core elements. It's something I'm convinced we need to get back to is getting people in our homes, specifically people who do not know Jesus, sharing meals with them. This is a central tenet of the church throughout history, and it's been lost in the last 18 months. But then he also met them and loved them where they were at. And that's the key thing. Jesus sought them out where they were. And again, COVID has done a lot of messed up stuff. And one of the benefits for many of us is that it allows us to work from home. And that seems great. We can gym from home. We can shop from home. And all that seems wonderful. But again, it's also at the cost of that has caused us to lose one of our greatest aspects of the church. Our greatest strengths was that we worked among people. The primary way in which we are meeting with people who are lost is by our co-workers. And in the last 18 months, many of us no longer are around co-workers who are in any way or have no one around us who is lost. And I honestly believe as a church, if you are working from primarily now, not that it's bad, that's wonderful, I'm glad you can do that, but you need to be creatively seeking the Lord and praying, how then, if I am no longer around lost people, how can I engage that I'm around throughout the week people who do not know you that I am influencing as a light in the darkness? And I would just straight up ask you, who are the people who don't know Jesus that you're interacting with on a daily basis? You should know their names, know about them, know their families, know what's going on in their situation, knowing how you can pray for them. Who are the people around you? If you don't really know many, that's a problem. And you really should be seeking the Lord as a point of prayer of how do I get to know people that I'm daily, regularly interacting with those who do not know Jesus, who are lost. And number four, if you don't know Jesus today, your Savior, Lord, you're watching here or you're watching online, I want to tell you right now, Jesus is seeking after you just like he sought after Zacchaeus with the same passion. His love for you is greater than you could ever comprehend. If you do not know Jesus, come get to know him. Come talk to a friend. Come talk to me. Email the church, whatever it is. Come speak to someone about getting to know this incredibly loving Savior. Amen? All right, let us finish in word prayer. Father, we thank you for your love. Your love for us is greater than we could ever comprehend Jesus. And Lord, I thank you that in the midst of this time that is so unnerving and generally scary for so many of us as we've lost so much in this time, in this, this last season of life, Father, and so much is turned upside down, Lord, that you are our rock. But thank you, Lord, that you have promised us that you are with us in this time. Your spirit is here with us. And Lord, may you enable us and empower us to go forth under the power of your spirit. For us that are, any of us that are living in fear and discouragement of what's going on in the world around us, Lord, may our eyes be fixed upon you like when Peter fixed his eyes upon you after falling into the water and you raised him up, Lord. May our eyes be fixed upon you that you, in the midst of the storm of everything that's going on in Mill Creek and Woodenville and Everett and Bothell, Lord, you are on the throne and you reign, Jesus, and you are working in our midst. It's us who need to get on board with you, Lord, not you on board with us. Jesus, direct our minds, direct our hearts to you and to your work and to your love for the world around us. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift we have today.